Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. This is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And tonight, I'm kind of doing a double, two different stories. They both have one thing in common. Guess what it is? Guns. Yeah, bingo, you win. This is almost our seventh anniversary. Our next episode that you're doing will be our seventh anniversary. Yeah. It was Thanksgiving weekend, 2016. And it was seven years ago that we were at Crime Bake because I got a little notification in my yeah. Facebook. And that's when we... That's right. We When I finally convinced you. There was that panel by the people who do Crime Writers On. Yeah. Well, it's not just... I, we've talked about this before, but it's not so much <laughs> that you... That you finally convinced me is that I was finally unemployed. That's Can true. you imagine the shit storm there would have been? I know if, that's if true. If I'd been doing one you of these podcasts. You can't really do it. I know you can't. Do you think we should just get started then? Or did you have anything you wanted to talk no, about? No, because we're going to talk after you. About. Okay. I am going to go through some stuff about the Logan Clegg trial, which I spent several weeks in October covering for my friend Carol's digital news outlet, Manchester Ink Link. But before that, we have something else to talk about. So before we we get to Logan Clegg, we need to talk about the fact that Maine, two weeks ago, joined the states that have had mass shootings. And some Um. people are like, oh, I can't believe it happened here. And I'm like, it was just a matter of time. I'm surprised it hadn't happened already. We've got guns, 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 and a lot of assholes. Our gun laws aren't right. that strict and, here. and we'll get to that. Robert Card II shot 18 people at a bowling alley and then at a bar in Lewiston, Maine, on October 25th. He shot more than 18 people. 18 people died, and 13 were seriously injured, some of them, for mm-hmm. life, because he used hollow-point exploding bullets that mm-hmm. ripped people's faces and limbs apart. After a two-day manhunt, Card was found dead in a junk trailer on the grounds of the recycling plant in Lisbon, Maine, where he once worked. Lisbon's just about, it's just outside of Lewiston down the Androscoggin River. And he had shot himself. Card is definitely a guy who shouldn't have had access to guns. Yet he Uh did. And I'll tell you what happened, and then Becky and I will discuss it. And Mm. most of this is from the Boston Globe's excellent coverage, and they got it from news releases and their own research and stuff, and it probably appears in other publications too. But on May 3rd of this year, Card's son, who was 17 at the time, and his ex-wife told Sagadahawk County Sheriff's Deputy Chad Carlton that they were concerned about Card's mental health. The son said that beginning in January of this year, Card began thinking people were saying derogatory things about him, including accusations that he was a pedophile. And the son thought Card was hearing voices. It's not clear if Card ever said he was hearing voices or not, but that's what the son thought. And I had always, and Card's kind of a MAGA guy or was, and I don't know what the obsession these MAGA people have with pedophilia is i don't know but they are very obsessed with it the ex-wife said she was very worried about her son spending time with card the son and ex-wife also said card had recently picked up 10 to 15 of his guns that he'd been storing at his brother's house okay what sorry just the number he had 10 to 15 of his guns so right uh, people have a lot of i know i know the ex-wife also asked the deputy not to tell Card that they'd talked to him about any of this. Uh. 
The deputy contacted the administrator of the 3rd Battalion 304 Training Group at the Army Reserve Center in Saco, Maine, where Card was assigned. He was in the Army Reserves. And the deputy told the unit commander what the family had told him. The deputy wrote in a report that the Army official told him he had considerable concern about Card, and the deputy said it sounded like the Army was aware of Card's, quote, recent mental health decline. Carlton, the deputy, wrote that Card's training supervisor, First Sergeant Kelvin Moat, thanked me for the notification because they are scheduled for an upcoming training exercise involving crew-served weapons and grenades. First Sergeant Moat said that he was going to call Army Reserve Captain Jeremy Reamer immediately and start to figure out options to get Robert help. We agreed mm -hmm. to keep each other updated on any changes. Carlton, the deputy, then contacted Card's brother, Ryan, who said the family had been concerned about Card since the start of the year. In February, Card had gotten new hearing aids, and that seemed to make him even more angry and paranoid. The deputy noted some research suggested a link between hearing loss and mental illness. Hmm. And I think what that actually means, I heard on TV, is getting hearing aids and it increasing any some certain types like, of mental uh, illness issues like schizophrenia, yeah, and that type of thing. The deputy asked Ryan Card, Card's brother, if the deputy should talk to Card. Ryan Card said no. Hmm. The deputy wrote, Ryan thought the presence of a police officer may exacerbate the conversation. And I think what he means, because, you know, cops apparently can't speak English, is would make things worse. Would elevate or escalate the yes. issue. Carlton called the ex-wife back to tell her that the Army was aware of Card's mental health issues. The ex-wife said that Card's brother Ryan and sister Nicole had visited him in his mobile home in Bowdoin, a town kind of in between Portland and Lewiston, the night before. Mm -hmm. Card had answered the door with a gun and was, quote, talking <laughs> about people outside casing his house. But she said the conversation went very well and that Card agreed to see a doctor about the paranoia and voices. The sister, Nicole, is a nurse, and she was going to make sure Card got some medical help. Also that same day, Card's command sergeant told the deputy that he planned to sit down with Robert in the near future and see if they could get him to open up about what had been going on with him. On July 15th, Card was at Camp Smith in Cortland, New York, with his Army Reserve unit, and he and a buddy in the unit got into a fight with three other soldiers in a parking lot of a convenience store. Card accused them of calling him a pedophile mm. and repeatedly told them he would take care of it. He returned to his motel room and locked himself in. On July 16th, the next day, Card's commanding officers and fellow soldiers got access to his room, and after talking to him, they took him to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point Hospital, where Card was seen by a psychologist who determined he needed treatment. He was transferred to Four Winds Psychiatric Hospital in Katona, New York, where he spent 14 days. Hmm. According to the Boston Globe, the sergeant, Kelvin Moat, said Card didn't say a word to him during a four-hour hospital visit. He just stared through me without blinking, Moat said. Hmm. Um, and I think he said that to the Globe, and I'm like, that's quite a trick to not blink for four hours. Mm. So I think he probably blinked once or twice. <laughs> On September 15th, Card's Army Reserve commanders contacted the Sagadahawk County Sheriff's Department and asked that they do a well-being check on Card. 
because Card had punched a fellow reservist who was also a friend on the way home from a casino after the friend told him to knock it off because he was going to get into trouble talking about shooting up places and people. The friend quoted Card as saying that he, quote, has guns and is going to shoot up the drill center at Saco and other places, unquote. Oh, for fuck's sake. One of Card's fellow reservists had also sent several desperate, according to the Boston Globe, text messages around 2 o'clock one morning to Sergeant Moat, urging him to change the passcode to the unit gate where weapons were being stored. One text said, Please, I believe he's messed up in the head and threatened the unit other and other places. I love him to death, but I do not know how to help him, and he refuses to get help or to continue help. I'm afraid he's going to fuck up his life from hearing things he thinks he heard. The same day, September 15th, Moat wrote the Sagadahawk Sheriff's Office about his concerns over card with the reservist text warnings attached. A sheriff's deputy tried to contact Card that day by visiting his mobile home in Bowdoin, but no one was home. The deputy went back the next morning and waited for backup to arrive from the Kennebec County Sheriff's Department, which is the adjoining county, because they, at that point, believed Card was a danger and had guns. It took 45 minutes for backup to arrive. During that time, the deputy wrote in his report, Card could be heard moving around inside the trailer but would not answer the door. Due to being in a very disadvantageous position, we decided to back away. If law enforcement returned to check on him again between then and the shooting on October 25th, more than a month later, there's no record of it. Reserve Unit Commander Jeremy Reamer told the deputy, Card no longer has access to firearms through his military service. Reamer also reported that Ryan Card, the brother, had retrieved the personal weapons belonging to Card. Reamer told the deputy, after the second failed attempt to reach Card on September 16th, that Card is known to self-isolate, but after he keeps to himself for a while, he will come back out. Yeah, with guns blazing. Yeah, I know. He said the Army was going to try to get Card to retire, but in a way that he would, quote, get some mental health treatment, unquote. And by the way, Card was 40. I don't think I said that earlier. Yes. Reamer told the deputy it was best to leave Card alone for the time being. On September 17th, the deputy spoke with Ryan Card, the brother, who said he got Card's guns, but that Card had access to the safe at the family's farm in Bowdoin where the guns were stored. Ryan Card said he and his father would move the guns and try to make sure Card didn't have access to them or any other guns. He warned the deputy that, quote, his brother answers door of, oh, this must be what the deputy wrote in his report that the brother said, his brother answers door of his trailer, usually with a handgun out of view from the person outside. The Sagadahawk County Sheriff's Department had no further interaction with Card until October 25th when they joined in the manhunt after the shooting. Maine has a yellow flag law, the only one in the country, and it's pretty useless, that was passed in reaction to the 2019 Parkland shootings. The law says a person who's concerned that a family member may be a threat to himself or others must first alert law enforcement, which takes the family member, the one who's the threat, into protective custody. Then a medical professional evaluates him and deems him a threat, which is not required under red flag laws. You don't need that second step under red flag laws. Only after a medical diagnosis can a judge approve an order to temporarily remove the firearm. Hmm. So that relies on family to report somehow and then law enforcement to do something, to do more than they probably want to. NBC had a story about a family that tried to enact the yellow flag law on a a dangerous guy last year or the year before, and the guy ended up shooting his brother and ex-wife or something Mm. like that. No one 
wants to take anyone's guns away is part of the problem. That's clear from how everybody reacted to all the concerns about CARD. I've heard many people in the last two weeks say how hard it is to assess someone for mental health. So to me, the obvious solution is to ban assault guns. That Uh keeps them out of people's hands. One issue is you had the army, law enforcement, and the family all trying to make decisions about this guy who obviously didn't want decisions made about him. And it just didn't work. Nobody really that I've heard has come right out and said this, but the bottom line is if it's a family who's used to having guns and has guns and it's law enforcement who's used to guns and having guns and it's the army who's used to guns and having guns, they're all wicked, wicked hesitant to A, say somebody has mental health problems, even when he obviously does, and B, take away someone's mm-hmm. guns. Like I heard the phrase, some a sheriff or somebody had said before this all happened, well, maybe we should err on the side of caution and take the guns away. I'm like, how is that erring? How is taking somebody who's threatened to shoot people's guns away erring on the side of caution? What do you have to say about it? (laughs) You know, every time, every time a mass shooting happens, which is way too often, right? I have the same, because it's always the same type of gun. Um, I always have the same argument with people. There's no reason for a civilian to have that type of gun. There is no reason why you would want one there's no reason to have it these people are defending it and even people and now maine is a has a fairly small population and there are i think we've mentioned this before the degrees of separation in maine are very small i have acquaintances that i know from different parts of my life and for some reason they know each other lewiston is not very far from us I'm amazed at the number of people I got in arguments with on social media who live right near Lewiston. They probably know some of the victims or victims' family, and yet they are still doubling down on that there's nothing wrong. And the thing that kills me about this, this always happens, is these gun lovers always focus on these stupid details about the gun, the name of the gun, or, you know, you don't even know what it's called. I don't have to know what right. the fucking name right. is. No, you know that it kills, it shoots a hundred bullets, and how how quickly i know that 18 people got killed for no fucking reason right in our small town of a state and you are sitting there and defending there what are you defending right okay i want i want to be able to carry around a hand grenade with me at all times because i feel like i might want to throw it into a crowd of people why do you want to stop me from that i I think i should have that and the bullets he used are the kind that rip people to shreds just like the guy in uvaldi i know nobody will agree with me on this but maybe they should show the fucking pictures of what yes. those people look like the, like the day after it happened well why is it taking so long yeah. to identify people because i didn't have a fucking face you asshole no shit that's the that's the thing that killed me is people were complaining well i don't understand why they haven't identified people yet because they don't know who they are because right. they can't tell right because their bodies are like, ripped and even the people who weren't physically yeah can you imagine in that bowling alley was a youth tournament those kids i mean i'm just really angry so it's hard to be articulate about it but i'm i'm just astounded that anyone can and i'm sure all of our listeners who are not living in the united states are probably just 
right just befuddled understand people if you don't live in this country well australia managed after a massacre worse than this one in the 90s managed to ban assault uh, grade weapons and they don't have this problem now and people say well you need them to protect your home you don't need a fucking military grade assault weapon to defend your home i would like to see the statistics about how many people have successfully used a gun like that to legitimately defend their home. And so one of the things that I try to keep it, I don't even keep my face with, well, because somebody posted a meme that showed that the two kinds of rifle, the one that looks like a rifle and then the one that looks like a machine gun and how, oh, it's so stupid because they want to ban this one, but not this one. And and blah, blah, blah. That's what I said. I said, well, maybe they should all be banned. Oh my God. You think I would have said, you know, whatever. Of course there was some idiot that was like, oh, you just don't want to argue. And I'm like, there's nothing to argue. I have nothing more to say about it. And I think in a lot of ways, people are so, people in Maine hunt they hunt for food, many yes, of them. Yes, they do. And these yeah. are not guns you use for hunting. I think a lot of it is the huge amount of money that the gun companies and NRA have poured into convincing people who have apparently no critical thinking skills that this is a danger to them. I hate it when the media refers to it as a Second Amendment issue because the Second Amendment has no fucking thing no. to do. This has nothing to do with a well-regulated no. militia. no absolutely fucking nothing to do with the well-regulated militia which is the part of that that people seem to forget about i asked the person that posted that meme i said you probably know someone that knows the a victim of this how do you think they feel seeing a meme like this and he said that was unfair to bring that into the conversation oh, oh yeah. really? how would i feel if i knew somebody that died that way and i see somebody i just don't understand it i know i keep and, saying and that but there is no is, reason to defend that kind of a weapon and another thing is these accusations of politicizing it on threads an author that i know said i hate seeing right after this i hate seeing my state used as a political football but it's like it's not maybe it's a political football on the pro-gun side but i think when you're talking about saving lives how has it become almost okay that this happens how is it like how i that's what i I don't don't understand i do not know i don't and i will say that jared golden my congressional rep because i'm in district two in maine who um, I always vote for, and but it's a tough district. You kind of rolled your eyes. Anybody who's running against him, no, I agree, it would be worse. He's a veteran. He's been open about having PTSD and stuff like that. And he was always against an assault weapons ban. He's from Lewiston. When this happened, he immediately changed his mind. Yes. And he also did it in a way that you don't hear politicians do. Yes. He said he, he called it his failure. Yes. And he took responsibility for it. He said, I told myself that I had this to to protect my home. And I realized that that, that wasn't true. It was just rationalization and stuff. And I give him credit because lots of times even when people do change a stance, they are so namby-pamby about their words. Yes. He said, I was wrong. He called it his failure. He got a lot of shit for it when President Biden came to visit. I think that's why he wasn't there. Right. He didn't want to distract. Um, I will say that every single Republican that's run against him has been batshit crazy mm-hmm. the last few <laughs> elections. Well, that's District 2 in May. Um, yeah. Yeah. So 
he probably will get reelected. I think and he, will. he yes, he's a he's conservative he's Democrat. one of those on the fence guys. Yeah. No but other yeah. kind of Democrat is gonna get elected in no, this district. No. Our two senators, King and Collins, who are both at the Biden thing, even though King's independent and Collins is Republican, neither of them will support an assault weapons ban. No. So there you and go. How? How do you Somebody stand there in Lewiston? And explain to me why they always say well it's our right to have it well it's our right no one can say to me this is why we these right. guns are okay for well i'll tell you why have. with politicians a lot of politicians it's because they get a shitload of money oh yes from, from pro-gun lobby and running for office costs a lot of money and getting elected costs a lot of money this is unrelated to the gun thing but i was listening to a snippet of something while i was dri- in between driving places some guy being interviewed a book about politics or something I don't know, but he was just saying in the United States, when people are elected to office, all their goal is from the time they get elected is to get reelected. And that's what their main focus is. I just wanted to say one more time, I know the reason why they aren't banning them, but nobody who is against the ban or nobody who is defending these kind of weapons has ever had a logical reason that to me sounds plausible right why somebody should have no they never do it's always this big well they have a right to right well blah 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 blah. that still does not explain to me why why you feel the need to have one like i said that i said why does anyone feel the need to have one and someone's like no well we have a right to have one i'm like that's not what i'm saying because it makes you have them feel a right to do all sorts of things. It doesn't mean it doesn't explain to me why you have to. Because it makes them feel macho and powerful, yeah. and they can shoot things with it. We've Much... said it before. If you have a gun, you have the gun because you want to use it. You're going to find a reason to use it. Every single time one of these shootings happens, when you look into it, there are a million red flags leading mm-hmm. up to it. This guy had more than some. Right. And the problem and nobody did anything. And I know it's hard if you're if you have a relative that is having mental illness problems, you don't know what to do. But right. when they are somebody that's answering the door with a gun in their hand. The thing is, there are probably people all over Maine who do that. Oh yes, there but are the issue is for like even that idiotic yellow flag law to work every single thing has to work right and everybody has to do their part of it like a thousand percent and that's just not fucking gonna happen even though this guy told people he was gonna shoot people up even though his friends were fucking petrified he was gonna do it the army and the sheriff's department and his family kind of half-assed tried to navigate it obviously the family like the ex-wife is like don't tell him because she doesn't want to get fucking shot Part of it is, I know law enforcement has to deal with people who are shot, has to deal. So they see the carnage caused by even just your run-of-the-mill main shootings. But I think that guns are such a regular part of their life, they have a disconnect when it comes to the fact that, yeah, you're a law enforcement officer, you carry a gun, it's mm-hmm. part of your life, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't take seriously that this fucking guy who's telling people he's gonna shoot people like i just don't think like they never went back to check on him he, he was in the trailer and those they knew he was there just were like run away run away instead of fucking well and then the other thing i heard about well he never showed up i know he said he was gonna shoot up you know the army reserve place in Saco. 
Right. But he he never did show up, so we figured, you know, he wasn't going to do it. Oh, well, that's good. Well, he didn't give a time for that. Maybe it was on his list, but he <laughs> went to the bowling alley the and other thing is first. That we talked about, we didn't mention tonight, is this summer there were four people shot in Bowdoin. In April. Oh, it was in I, April. And I think I mentioned it in one of our episodes. Bowdoin. So the same yeah. small town that this guy lived in and nobody like was mentioning that on I the know. news even when they were yeah. looking from Bowdoin. like if i were one of the anchors on channel six i would have said by the way this is the second thing you know joe eaton shot his parents and their two friends in Bowdoin in april and then drove down 295 and shot, shot up a car claiming he thought it was cops which it wasn't those people were hurt but not killed so maine's murder list at the end of this year will be interesting to see because It'll it's be going to be high. Three times as high Badly. as it's, And it's all guns. I know we have a lot of listeners all over the world. People who don't live in the United States have asked me. I had a friend from Australia who's now sadly passed away. She used to say that to me. I never go visit there. I'm afraid I'll get shot. And I'm like, no, right. the chances are you won't get shot. But you never, you never know. know. It's Russian roulette. Because, you know? And that's the thing, because there are guns everywhere right and there's a gun it's not just that people have guns this culture and this fetish about it it's crazy and it's right. it's gross there's so much more we could say but we only have so much time speaking of somebody who had a gun and so felt the need to use it as i mentioned earlier i spent most of october covering the logan clegg trial which lasted from October 2nd until the verdict came in October 23rd i was covering Ooh, it for my friend carol trial it was my friend Carol Robido's digital news outlet, Manchester Inkling. Because I'm freelance, I could go down there and sit. And, you know, I stayed at Nikki and Todd, our sister and brother-in-law's camp, which for those of you who, who don't live in northern New England is a nice house on a lake in their case. A friend yeah. of mine from Boston, the city boy, said, oh, are you going to live in a tent? And I'm like, no, it's it's actually what we call a, a house Doesn't on a he lake. watch Main Cabin Masters? No, he does not. Anyway... I'm not going to go through the entire history of the case. We covered it from way back before Clegg's name was even known when police found the bodies of Jaswendi and Stephen Reed in Concord, New Hampshire. I'll give enough information that if you haven't listened to our other episodes or are unfamiliar with the case, you'll know what I'm talking about. You can listen to episodes 133 and 138 in particular. We've talked about it on a lot, but those have yeah. the most information with the caveat that events have overtaken some of the information on those episodes. If you mm -hmm. only listen to one, I recommend 138, which came out, I think, in February of this year. That said, when we recorded those, I had no clue I'd be covering the trial as a journalist. I expressed opinions and stuff based on what I knew, but also on what I thought at the time, and some of my thoughts have changed. Ooh. I did not find it hard to cover the case objectively, Despite my opinions, most journalists who understand their jobs and have been doing it for a while can turn off that part of their brain automatically. And, you know, if you're covering a trial, you can. Of course, that doesn't mean I didn't and don't have opinions and impressions both about the case and the justice system at large, which is what we'll be talking about in this episode. Oh. I want to add, too, that if you're listening and you were involved with the case, I don't mean to offend anyone or diminish the work anyone did. But my impressions are also based on decades of experience as well as extensive research of and deep thought about the criminal justice system and how it works. I also want to make it clear I'm not marginalizing the victims. 
Just Wendy and Stephen Reed by referring to it as the Logan Clegg case or talking extensively about Logan Clegg. I truly understand he was on trial because someone shot and killed two people for no good reason, but Logan Clegg was the one being tried for killing them, and that's what we're talking about tonight. I don't mean to be glib, but when you're talking about a guy being tried for murder and what happened, you really have to talk about the guy and him being tried for murder and some of my information in this episode is from my prior scripts which relied on news reports and very heavily on two police affidavits more on that in a bit too most of it though is from what happened in courtroom one at merrimack county superior court in concord new hampshire between october 2nd and october 23rd some of the synopsis was directly from my articles covering the trial rewritten a little for the narrative If you want to read all of my articles on the case, by the way, visit Manchester Ink Link. It does not have a paywall. Go on Manchester Ink Link and search for Logan Clegg. And also, I was interviewed by the podcast Murder. She told the day of my interview that night was the Lewiston shooting. Yeah, yes, it was. So their episode where they talked to me and it wasn't like they weren't going to put the full interview on or anything. We talked for like two hours. That was superseded by the shooting. So I'm not sure if the episode has dropped yet or not. I don't just, know if it has or not. I but just so you guys can look for that. And I listened to Murder She Told. They do cover some of the same stuff as us, but it's a little different. Their little style different is us. different. So first I'm going to go over what the case was and then I'm going to talk about some specific topics based on my experience of month of October. So how does that sound, Becky? Sounds good. All right. I'm going to keep <laughs> Like you have a choice. <laughs> First, here's the synopsis. And even if you're familiar with the case from our other episodes or reading about it, this has some new info. I learned at the mm. trial. So. I'm excited. Okay. Just Wendy and Stephen Reed, who had been married for 38 years, were living in an apartment in Concord, New Hampshire in April 2022. Well, they looked for a house in the area after years of working around the world, mostly in Africa. Stephen, 67, was born in Concord, and though the two had lived and worked in many African countries over the decades, they had their two children in Concord and often stayed there when they weren't in Africa. They moved to Concord permanently in 2019. Just Wendy, 66, was born in Benin in Western Africa and grew up in Togo on Africa's West Coast, but her parents Mm. were natives of Burkina Faso which is also in Western Africa. The pair were known as kind and generous. Their lifelong contributions to making the world a better place have left an indelible mark on the lives of many people around the world, their children, and all who knew them, their obituary said. On the afternoon of April 18th, 2022, the Reeds went for a walk near their apartment. Wendy hated ticks, and earlier in the day, when Stephen's brother Peter had invited them on a walk with him and his wife Bobby, Stephen declined, texting back that they were going on a goring, tick-free walk around their neighborhood. But at some point, they changed their minds and decided to walk in the broken ground trail system behind their apartment complex. People from the Alton Woods apartment complex, where they lived on Loudon Road in northeast Concord, could get to the broken ground trail system by walking on a path out the back of the complex under Interstate 393 along a path that goes up a hill through a long power line clearing to the trailhead of the Marshall Trail. And this is the way the couple went. As they walked up the power line's path, there's a parking area and they passed Nan Nutt, who was there to walk her dogs, Coriander and Bodie. Bodie is a small poodle mix. Cory is a mix of indeterminate breeds. Both are less than 25 pounds. So not big dogs. 
the Reeds Pass Nanna, who is a retired immunology researcher with two PhDs. She's in her 70s, I believe. Nan's dogs are not fast walkers, and they like to sniff. (laughs) Nevertheless, she turned on the exercise tracker on her Apple Watch to track the walk. This would later be made great use of by the police investigators. The Reeds were chatting amiably as they walked by Nan, and Stephen nodded to her in greeting. The last time Nan Nutt saw the Reed was several minutes later, way ahead of her up the hill, and then they entered the Marsh Loop Trail in the woods. As Nan herself entered the trail several minutes later, she heard gunshots. Bang, bang. Then a two-second pause. Bang, bang, bang. The shots seemed to come from in front and to the right of where she was with her dogs, Corey and Bodie. The shots were in quick succession. Two, then pause, and then three. They were very loud. She jumped and the dogs jumped. Nut, who is, quote, not a gun person, unquote, thought they sounded like a handgun, not a rifle. When she lived in the town of Epping, New Hampshire, years before, she had a neighbor who had a shooting range, and she was familiar with the sound. Her first thought was that she wasn't wearing Hunter Orange. Then she realized it was April, not hunting season. My second thought was that I've been watching too much awful TV, Nut said at the trial. After I thought I'd been watching too much bad TV, I thought it was time to walk on. And so I did. As Nut walked north on the trail, which parallels the power lines at that point, which is on the other side of several yards of woods, she saw a man up ahead. He was standing still on the trail, staring into the woods off to her right, the opposite direction of the power lines. He was not scanning by her perception, but staring. As she got about 10 yards away from him, he began walking toward her. She had those expandable leashes with her dogs, and she brought him in and brought her dogs in close. Something about him made her wary. As Mm. he passed her, he looked away, and she only glimpsed his profile. In any case, she didn't look him in the face. Quote, my first thought was that he heard the same shots I did, unquote. But as she got closer, she became uneasy. He was slender white, about 5'10", dressed in khaki pants, navy blue sweatshirt, and wearing a backpack. He was carrying a brown plastic grocery bag. She saw what she thought was the cylinder pushing against it like the top of a jar, like about the size of a peanut butter or pickle jar. Mm -hmm. He didn't look like someone hiking the trails, but more like a street person or homeless person, but seemed out of place in those woods, which didn't have a lot of homeless people in them. She said at the trial, like most women my age, if it's a male you don't know, you don't look them in the face when you pass them. And he'd already made me anxious. And I think she was focused on her dogs, getting her dogs by, just getting past him. After they passed, she turned around to see if he was walking away. He was, but he'd also turned around to look back at her. They broke eye contact and she turned around and kept walking. But moments later, she turned around again quickly to make sure he was still walking. He'd already made her uncomfortable. And she thought, I'm going to turn around one last time and remember what that guy looks like. Mm, but but he didn't turn around that time, so she was looking at his back. Two days later, on the evening of April 20th, 2022, Stephen Reed's sister, Susan Foray, a retired state trooper, reported Wendy and Stephen missing. Stephen was supposed to play a doubles tennis match with his brother earlier that day and hadn't shown up. His brother hadn't been able to reach him. It was not like Stephen at all to ghost people and not be in contact, especially when he knew people had been waiting for him and were depending on him. Ditto for Wendy, who they also couldn't reach. Because Forey was a former state trooper, she retired as an executive major after 26 years with the force. 
she first called the state police rather than the Concord Police Department. She knew the state police had the resources and ability to jump on the case immediately, she said. She also knew her former colleagues would take her concerns seriously about the missing couple and report it to the Concord PD. And that's not a knock against the Concord Police Department, but they have 90 officers covering a city of 44,000, and we all know how missing person reports can be treated. The search for the Reeds began that night. Their apartment was clean and undisturbed. Wallets, cell phones, glasses, and other belongings there indicated they didn't just take off. And that, as well as jewelry laid out on the bureau, indicated whatever happened to them was likely not robbery-related. One of the cops responding was State Police Trooper James Powers and his sniffer dog, Wyatt. Very shortly after Powers began looking for the reeds, he came across a tent just inside the woods near the apartment complex. This was nowhere near the broken ground trail system, relatively, just right outside of Alton Woods' apartment complex. Police weren't looking in broken ground because they thought Wendy and Stephen were going on a tick-free walk around the neighborhood. The guy in the tent stuck his head out and, when asked, told the trooper that his name was Arthur Kelly. He hadn't seen the reeds and he had just gotten there this afternoon from Massachusetts. Powers noticed a pile of Mountain Dew code red cans outside the tent. <clears throat> These cans and Arthur Kelly himself would become keys to the investigation once it was discovered the Reeds had been killed. Powers told the Concord PD investigators about the guy, and a little while later, Detective Garrett Lemoyne and Christian DeSilvio went over to talk to him. DeSilvio, on the way over, ran the name Arthur Kelly, but nothing came up for him in New Hampshire. When they got to the tent, the guy popped his head out. When Lemoyne grabbed the top stake and shook it, he said that's what you do to rouse homeless people in their tents. Oh, and that's it, nice to know. Yeah, the guy once again said his name was Arthur Kelly. He hadn't seen the reeds, and he wanted to be left alone. When asked, he told them he was from Massachusetts. DeSilvio ran his name with Massachusetts, and nothing came up for an Arthur Kelly there either, which kind of surprises me. I know, because it's not an uncommon name. I know. He should have picked Michael or Kevin or Sean or one of those names. I think there were three Sean Kellys at Holy Cross when I was I know. there. Lemoyne and DeSilvia also noticed the pile of Mountain Dew code red cans. Like I said at the time, because the Reeds had said they were going on a tick-free, boring neighborhood walk, no one was looking for them in the broken ground trail system about a quarter mile away. Can I ask you something? Have you seen the trail itself? Yes, I have, as a matter of fact, and I can talk about how I saw it before I get to my topics, I'll tell you. At some point, the cops realized the two cell phones in the apartment belonged to Wendy, and Steve's wasn't there. A cop at the station made a request to Google for the last ping on Steven's phone. Hmm. There was testimony at the trial, very complicated about how that all works, but what it does is it reveals coordinates that give uh, an area. Triangulation. Right. And those coordinates received late afternoon on April 21st showed a location off Marshall Loop Trail in the Broken Ground Trail system. The coordinate is for a certain radius rather than a specific point. The Concord cops hiked up the trail while state police trooper Brett Barry and his dog Oakley Mm. and other state police approached from the other direction through the woods. In the woods, Oakley alerted on what looked like a pile of leaves and sticks. Through a hole in the pile where Oakley began frantically nosing and digging, Barry spotted the top of a human head with hair. Good boy. Yes. Or girl. Yeah, I think Oakley's a boy. At this point, the Concord police detectives were on Marsh Loop Trail right above the area, which is about 50 yards down an incline from the trail. Oakley had found Wendy and Stephen Reed. Did he get credit from the cops for it? 
No, of course not. And we'll talk more later about why cops don't give the dogs credit because it actually was part of the defense's argument. The investigation the next day turned up some blood and a bullet fragment on Marsh Loop Trail right above where the bodies were found. This blood and bullet fragment were found by sniffer dog Cora of the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. She's trained to sniff out gunshot evidence. It looked like someone had shot the reeds on the trail and dragged them down into the woods. In the days after, police searched with metal detectors and did a line search and searched with Cora and other sniffer dogs, but didn't uncover any more ballistics evidence than the small fragment found on the trail. Steve and Wendy had been killed by multiple gunshot wounds. Wendy by two, right below her right ear, and Steve by at least four. The only bullet found in a body was one in Wendy's head. All others had gone through them. None of those were identifiable as far as caliber or anything like that went, though the one that killed Wendy could have come from a 38 caliber or 9mm gun. With not a lot to go on, police made a public appeal for information. Nan Nutt had already contacted them April 22nd, the day after the Reed's bodies were found, to tell them about the guy that she saw. and Good the gun. And the gunshots that she heard. In fact, she wrote it all out so she would remember Nice. Because she's a scientist. Yes. Another man, another man, Alan Schwartz, who was also walking on the trail April 18th, also came forward. He'd seen four shell casings on Marsh Loop Trail the afternoon of April 18th and picked one up to look closer. He didn't see any clear markings or anything, and he said he dropped it back down and left the four casings where they were. Other people came forward to say that they'd seen a strange guy in the woods over the past several months. In many cases, it sounded like he looked a lot like the man Nan Nutt had seen. Police released a composite sketch that was only a profile, which caused a lot of consternation at the time, but it turned out it was from Nan's description, and she'd only seen the side of the guy's face. And this wasn't talked about at trial, But there were many, many hearings over the summer, and in the documentation to suppress, and one of the things was Nan Nutt was very unhappy with the sketch artist process, which took hours, and she felt like she was being pressed to say things, and she just didn't see the guy clearly, and she's a scientist. She didn't want to be asked to describe something she didn't see, and none of that, That of course, was talked about at the trial. Anyways, the composite looked a lot like the guy who said he was Arthur Kelly, which is kind of what happens when the cops have somebody in mind and are trying to get somebody to... Yes, probably does, yeah. When the cops went back to that tent site near the Alton Woods complex on April 22nd, two days after they talked to Arthur Kelly, Arthur was gone and the tent site was spotless with nothing, not one little thing, not one Mountain Dew bottle left behind. That was weird, they thought, because homeless people apparently are slobs as... The police at the trial frequently said. Um, you would think that if you came to my town. Well, where are they going to But put they don't have any dumpsters. Where are they they need put to put stuff? a dumpster there. There was another tent site, too, if you remember from our previous episodes. This is what the cops, using incorrect American English spelling, called the burnt, <laughs> burnt tent the site. Burnt. The first time police came upon it, it wasn't burnt or burned, as people who speak proper American English say. <laughs> On April 15th, three days before the Reeds took their walk, a resident of Profile Avenue, Stephen Hetchy, and this is toward the northern part of the Broken Ground Trail system, way up from where Marsh Loop Trail is, called the police to tell them that there was a campsite in the woods near the power lines up there. It's illegal to camp out, 
in the Concord city limits. And campsites are almost always homeless people, of course. Mm-hmm. The guy, this guy, Stephen Hashi, had called police before starting in January, but those times apparently police went and looked and couldn't find it. You know, kind of like the police couldn't find it. Well, they couldn't see it from their car. Right, right. Because it was only several yards into the trees off the power lines. I don't think they looked that hard. This time, the guy who called it in walked Officer Brian Craig to where it was. Craig said that the tent was padlocked and there was a pair of boots outside. He determined no one was there. And remember when we talked about this on our episode, who puts a padlock on a tent? Because if you want what's inside, all you have to do is cut it open. I know. You know, but know. in any case. Maybe whatever I, was in it, when he would know that somebody went in it. Yeah, that's right. It was ripped open. That's right. Apparently, Craig promptly forgot about the whole thing. He didn't write a report, didn't mention it to anybody, and during the 24 hours the reeds were missing and being searched for, and even after the reeds were found dead, it doesn't seem like he ever mentioned it to anyone. That's weird. Yes. On April 20th, two days after the reeds went for their walk, but a day before their bodies were found, Alicio Medina, who also lived at Alton Woods apartment complex, was riding his bike up in that area of the trails. He went into the woods to answer a call of nature and came upon what looked like a campsite that had been burned. There was a large pile of camping style, camping sized propane tanks in what looked like the footprint of a tent. There were also pots and pans, tent poles, and other burned stuff. It looked like somebody had piled everything into a tent and set it on fire and burned it. The nearby tree branches were also scorched. He could tell it happened pretty recently. It struck him as so odd that he took photos with his phone. At some point, he shared the photos with police, though it's not clear when. And he testified on the first day of the trial. They used a Spanish interpreter for his testimony. Hmm. And one of the things that becomes clear when you cover a trial like this is there are things, details that they just don't say, whether deliberately or not. The fact that nobody says when Alicio told police about those photos I think is because the police failed to act on that tent site. And my guess is he showed them to them when there was all this going on after the reeds had been killed, but nobody took him seriously. If I had to do a wild guess, I'd say it's because he is a Latino man who speaks halting English. So it's not clear when he shared those pictures with Hmm. police. On April 26, so this would be five days after the Reed's bodies were found, Detective Wade Brown, who was the assistant lead detective on what was now a homicide case, found out about the burnt tent site, not from Alicio Medina, but from Stephen Hatchie, the resident up there, who'd called, who'd went out there with Officer Brian Craig on April 15th, and who now thought he'd let police know about it since nobody had called him or asked anything Mm -hmm. about it or gone up to it. You'd think at this point, Officer Craig would have heard around the station that there had been a missing person case that had turned into a double homicide, and the only lead was this weird guy camping in the woods. But he didn't, even though he said at the trial that it was not common, it was very uncommon for homeless people to camp out in the broken ground trail system, and so it stood out to him that there was a homeless site there you'd think he would have had an aha moment. (laughs) My theory is he's a patrolman. He's probably in his 40s or early 50s even. They asked him how long he'd been on the force. He said 20 years. My theory is he was, fuck them. They're detectives, all these smart-ass detectives. 
they know about this. Let them figure it out. Why am I going to go tell them? Mm-hmm. And I, and back sitting around outside the courthouse trading theories, I mentioned that to a couple other reporters and they're like, oh, no, really? And I'm like, haven't these people ever talked to cops? I mean, when I worked in New Hampshire, we used to hang out in a bar that cops went to. I can just see some cop like that sitting there and saying, fuck them, those detectives. They can go fucking find the burnt mm-hmm. tent site. Any case, we'll never know. Anyway, even after Detective Wade Brown went out to take a look on April 26, Craig never mentioned that he'd been there three days before the Reeds were what killed. And Wade Brown, at first, didn't think the tent site had anything to do with the homicides. <laughs> Who knows why? Who knows why? But they, uh, they, they, yeah. they always tell witness you know people, i know even uh, if you think it has nothing to do with it come forward right. and yet they're yes yeah they already knew about arthur kelly and you'd think anything odd in the woods would capture their interest but it didn't and especially because by then they were already out of ideas so you'd think and but it just shows that lack of creative thinking and in the following weeks as tips began coming in about a weird guy in the woods which mm-hmm. more people had also seen which we discussed in episode 138 the cops thought gee maybe it does have something to do with it and none of those people by the way testified at the trial just nan not and alan schwartz oh, and alicia medina but even though they thought maybe it does have something to do with it they still didn't do much the key they believed was the mountain dew cans because mountain dew code red was not something everybody was drinking so they started (laughs) checking receipts and surveillance video from walmart shaw's and other loudon road stores and found a guy who they dubbed mountain dew man who bought a lot of mountain dew and things like rotisserie chicken and looked a lot like nan nuts guy yeah they still hadn't found much in the way of actual evidence though or anything actually despite searches with metal detectors sniffer dogs and many many cops all around the crime scene then on may 20th A month after the Reeds were killed, investigators took the medical examiner, Mitchell Weinberg, and then Assistant Attorney General on the case, Jeffrey Ward, to check out the scene. Ward was standing next to a big tree on Marsh Loop Trail that was right at the spot where the Reeds were believed to have been dragged off of it. He looked down. At his feet were two shell casings. In plain sight. Hmm. Hey, Wade, he yelled to Detective Brown. You want to take a look at this? The casings were very clearly marked Sig Sauer Luger 9mm. That was May 20th, a month after the shootings, after extensive, extensive searches around that tree when no casings were found. I know, that's interesting. Yes. In July, Wade Brown went back to the burnt tent site. This is two months after he first went to it and started sorting through it. He did that because on July 19th, Officer Craig had told someone on the case about visiting the site on April 15th. It's not clear why the information from Officer Craig came to the homicide detectives three months after the shootings. This is when the police learned that the tent site was intact April 15th and that there was a padlock on it and boots by it. At some point, they got Alicio Medina's photos and said, okay, by April 20th, it had been burned. On April 15th, it was there. So this is connected with the case. The sequence of why it wasn't till July 19th, Officer Craig's information got to homicide detectives. When Alicio Medina showed them photos of the site, none of that was clear at the trial. Huh. And again, they keep 
there's information that you're just not going to hear. You can sit through every single minute of a three-week trial and still not have answers <laughs> to questions. And that was mid-July. So finally, toward the end of August, they searched the site. They sorted it all out. Wade Brown lined up all the propane tanks and little rows of 10 and everything. There were 155 of them. Wow. They, and they searched it with metal detectors, and they found 18 bullet casings, similar to the two that the AGA had found on May 20th. And they also found three bullets, like somebody had been doing target shooting up there. They'd also been very busy trying to connect the Mountain Dew Man dots, and I won't go into it at all. Again, episode 138 lays all out. It was definitely a very intricate way they found out. But at the end of September, they discovered that Mountain Dew Man's name was Logan Clegg. Clegg, 27, now, 26 at the time, was born January 24th, 1996 in Tempe, Arizona, the son of LeVar and Tisha Clegg. When he was three, the family moved to Colville, Washington, a town of about 4,700 people in the northwest corner of the state, about an hour north of Spokane. Clegg's father died by suicide, and Clegg, 12 at the time, was the one who found his body. Uh. Clegg earned a GED, which is the equivalent of a high school degree. Before his arrest, he had led an itinerant life since his late teens, living in tents in the Spokane area where he worked at a McDonald's. And there's more details on that, too, in episode 138. In 2018, he stabbed a man, Corey Ward, to death in Spokane, but Uh. said it wasn't self-defense and he was never charged. Oh, actually, it's probably episode 133 that I have more about stuff that happened with him in Spokane and the Cory Ward thing. On November 9th, 2020, Clegg, who was living in Logan, Utah at the time, and the cops were just delighted that the town in Utah he lived in was Logan, like his first name, for some reason. Oh. They just really, that just really. What a coincidence. Yeah. I don't believe in coincidence. <laughs> But on November 9th, 2020, Clegg was sentenced to 36 months probation in Utah for charges of failing to stop at the command of a law enforcement officer, a class A misdemeanor, theft by receiving stolen property, burglary and theft, all third degree felonies after he stole two guns from a sporting goods store. And for more on that, listen to episode 138. He did threaten to shoot the police and When Clegg didn't appear for a probation appointment in June 2021, a warrant was issued for his arrest. It was only for states west of the Mississippi River. That's because, as we discussed in episode 145, Amy Riley, states only want to pay so much to extradite someone, you know, depending on the charge. Clegg likely didn't know, though, that it was just a West Coast warrant. When the Concord police detectives found out who he was, they looked him up and found out about the warrant. Detective Danica Gorham, ostensibly the lead on the case, though Wade Brown seemed to think he was from listening to him at the trial and from all the shit he did, got in contact with Logan, Utah police. That paid off because Clegg in early October of 2022 bought a one-way plane ticket to Berlin, Germany, (laughs) flying out of JFK in New York on October 13th. That alerted Homeland Security because of the warrant, so they let the Utah cops know who let Danica Gorham know. Clegg had put a phone number for his burner phone on his ticket purchase, and that allowed the Concord police to track him to South Burlington, Vermont, where he was arrested on October 12, 2022, on the warrant, and arrested a few days later on the Reed killings. A little over a year later, just last month, he was found guilty of four charges of second-degree murder, both knowingly and recklessly for each of the Reeds, as well as three counts of falsifying evidence for burning the tent, wiping his computer search history clean and lying to police. 
Hmm. Actually, four for falsifying evidence. There are two different line to police things. And one count of being a felon in possession of a firearm. There was literally no evidence linking Clegg to the murders, so it was a totally circumstantial case. And I certainly get that circumstantial evidence can be strong and can convict somebody, but I'll talk more about reasonable doubt later from this case. So... It's talk impo- about so many things. I, I, I am. It's impossible to talk about everything about this case, but I'm going to talk about some things that came up at trial and how the whole thing really reinforced stuff about the justice system that we talk about. And I'm going to go topic by topic. And the first thing is to answer your question about seeing the trial. Yes. So the first day of the trial, after the opening statements, we took a field trip to the Marshall trial system. Oh, you mean everybody was allowed to go? Well, here's how it worked. The judge, the three prosecuting attorneys, the two defense attorneys, Clegg, a bunch of cops, the court clerk, the bailiff, and the jury, of course, and all the reporters. Oh, this was one right. of the member of the press. And it was closed off to the public. The trail was, but this is the only day there were like maybe 10 reporters there for most of the trial, just me and this other reporter were the only ones there and also tim um Cully from channel nine was there a lot but on this day there were a bunch of us and the interesting thing was first of all it was abnormally hot this was october 3rd mm-hmm. and it was in the 80s out yeah which for up here this time of year was crazy they told everybody okay you're not supposed to talk the judge told the jury you're not allowed to ask questions the attorneys are going to point things out and you're going to look at them, but you're not allowed to ask people questions. And the thing was, I had expected Clegg to be in shackles because back in the 80s, when I was working for the Biddeford Journal Tribune in Maine, I went on one of these. The guy, I can't remember what the trial was, but we went out to some meadow somewhere and the guy was wearing prison orange and his feet in, were shackled and his hands were shackled to one of those waistband things. But Logan was not shackled. He was wearing the blue shirt and black pants that his attorneys had probably bought for him for the trial. The first couple of days, the shirt actually still had the lines in it from being mm. folded. In the, and they gave him a bottle of water. There were sheriff's deputies and there were a couple obvious plainclothes state cops, I think. They could have been Concord police, but they had that beefy state cop look. But the thing is, like, they didn't hover right around him. One of his attorneys, Maya Dominguez, stayed with him the whole time. She's like five feet tall at the most. And there were times, because you're all walking, and it's this trail where I'd be like, realized I was like standing right next to him. I mentioned that to somebody later, and they said, oh, were you scared? And I said, no, but I moved away because I didn't want to be invading his space. I don't, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And it was very interesting, but we walked the whole trail and they pointed out tree one, which is the tree where the bullet casings were found. And they had all these diagrams during the- Is it a rustic trail or is it more- It's a trail through like the woods. It's not groomed, but it's walked on enough. You know, it's a trail, you know, there's roots and stuff. In yeah, some okay. places it's wide enough for two people to walk next to each other, but it's a dirt trail through the okay. woods. And it was a beautiful, hot day, but beautiful. It was good to go there because you did see, like, they showed us where they thought the shooting took place. We walked down into the woods, and there was almost like a deer trail, like not a real trail, but you could, an opening between the trees to get down to where the bodies had been found. And so it was very interesting where the burnt tent site was, Mm. the power lines. And so topic one, 
our entire justice system is geared toward presumption of guilt, yeah. not innocence. Yeah. The potential jurors are asked during jury selection if they understand the presumption of innocence. A big deal is made about innocent until proven guilty, yet the whole system is set up to support a presumption of guilt. This was very clear in the Clegg trial. If this were a mystery novel and not real life, Clegg would be the ultimate red herring, a guy who did everything wrong and was definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time. In real life, red herrings sometimes get convicted. Sometimes they're innocent and sometimes they're guilty. Someone asked while we were waiting for the jury to come back, well, if he didn't do it, who did? Mm. I'm like, who the hell knows? If he didn't do it, we'll likely never know who did. Yeah. Because once police focused on the mysterious guy in the woods, the guy who gave them a false name when they stumbled upon him shortly after they started looking for the reeds, that's where the investigation went. Mm-hmm. That's what the defense attorney meant when, during jury selection, she asked the remaining 24 out of a pool of almost 200 people if they knew what confirmation bias was. Only one guy did. He was later struck. <laughs> he, didn't, yeah. he didn't make the final 12. I presume he was struck by the prosecution. I knew then that the defense would have a tough time when they're trying to make a case for confirmation bias and no one on the jury had ever heard of it before the trial yeah. began. It's just not going to fly. The benefit of a mystery novel over real life is that the writer must put other possible suspects in or it's not fair play with the reader. Readers know that the most obvious suspect usually isn't the killer because the author is making him an obvious suspect. That's part of writing a suspenseful novel, as most of you probably know. And And you're a novelist. I don't know if they know that. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) In real life. I'm jealous. I know you are. (laughs) When I make it big, we'll see how you feel about it then. Now I can't see because my eyes are watering. You're making me cry. I'm sorry. (laughs) In real life, though, the obvious subject is usually the one who is arrested and convicted. Prosecutors come up with a theory. The evidence that best fits that theory is what the jury gets to hear. The theory that makes the most sense that the evidence supports is the theory they promote. You'd be astounded at what evidence never gets introduced at trial. There are many, many things that never came up at this trial. So anyway, the jury vows to go by the presumption of innocence. And yet the whole thing, like I said, is set up to draw the conclusion that these people are dead, this guy did it, and if you don't believe it from the start, there's something wrong with you. The family of the Reeds, who've undergone one of the worst things a family can endure, sit feet from the jury. The Reeds' son, Brian, sat feet from the jury, he's an adult, for three weeks. Mm -hmm. With his wife a lot of the time, and there were a lot of days other people were there. At some point in the early days of the trial, someone put a box of Kleenex in a prominent spot on the railing in front of the family, And, you know, they sit right behind the prosecution and it stayed there right up until the verdict was read, where the jury could see it every time they glanced, every time they looked straight ahead. And the day the verdict was read was the only time, by the way, I saw anyone touch that box of Kleenex. That box of tissues is part of the theater of the court, a way to signal to the jury, again, just feet away from the family, these people have a lot to cry about. And they do, yes, but that little prop is one of the many ways the line between the tragic circumstances and the presumption of innocence blurs. The message is that the man who made these people suffer is sitting right over there. Jurors, do you really want to cause them more pain by finding him not guilty? Prosecutors believe the defendant is guilty or they wouldn't be going through this. But the courtroom setup and atmosphere is clearly us versus them. You're either on the prosecution side, he's guilty, or you're Mm -hmm. against the family. Where does that leave justice in that mix? 
The family is tied inexorably to the prosecution. They are accompanied by a victim advocate who works for the attorney general's office, constantly accompanied by her. She caters to them. They sit right behind the prosecution table every single day. Several law enforcement prosecution witnesses nodded to both the prosecution team and the family as they walked by after their testimony. Let's not forget, Stephen Reed's sister, Susan Foray, was with the state police for 26 years. She was in the courtroom many, many, many days. And I'm not blaming the family. They've suffered an uncountable loss, one that's theirs to endure for the rest of their lives. But a message is clear from day one that makes it hard for a jury to separate that from the fact that if they vote to acquit, they're hurting these people further, and they're going against everything that this courtroom has told them to believe. Uh-huh. The prosecutors, too, sit feet away from the jury. During the defense case in the last week of the trial, I saw the prosecutors several times whisper and smile, sometimes chuckling with each other during the defense's direct questioning. The message to the jury, this isn't important to us. We aren't worried about this. You shouldn't be either. As a journalist, I sit on the defense side, mostly because there's more room, partly because I'm neutral, and since we have to pick a side, I'm going to pick presume innocence. But it's also easier to see the jury, defendant, and both sets of lawyers from that vantage point, at least in this courtroom it was. During testimony, I scanned the room, the lawyers, the family, the defendant, for reactions. I didn't see the defense, who were in my line of sight to the witness stand, for three weeks, laugh or smile once during the two weeks of the prosecution case, unlike the prosecution laughing and joking with each other during the defense case. My vantage point also means I spent three weeks sitting a few rows behind Logan Clegg, looking at his painfully thin shoulders and shoulder blades outlined by the blue shirt, then later a gray sweater that he wore every day. At one point, one of his lawyers straightened his inside-out collar. I wondered how often in his life someone had taken even that little bit of care with him. It wasn't part of the theater of the courtroom. The jury's eyes were on the witness box, and their vantage point isn't one where the gesture would have been noticeable. The jury that is considering whether to send him for prison for the rest of his life isn't in a spot where they can see him as a person the way they see the victim's family sitting just feet away. Presumption of guilt isn't just reserved for prosecution or the family, which law enforcement and the prosecution has carefully cultivated, and maybe not in this case, but they do in many cases. And for more on that, listen to episodes 90 and 91, The Murder of Jody Parak, where we talk about that. But you can feel it in the court and the antipathy toward the defendant and his attorneys. Even a reporter who attended much of the trial, who sat next to me when she talked to me about some elements of the trial, she would say when Clegg did blah, 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 rather than when the killer did. When I corrected her, she didn't seem to get my point. Mm. And of course, the public information is driven by the police from the beginning. Those affidavits that we based episodes 133 and 138 on, you know, that's all the police side of it. And And all of our, a lot of our our episodes. That's right. In my long experience as a journalist and also with six decades as a human being under my belt, I've seen how people are willing to take the police narrative for granted, even if it's not always the full story or the accurate story. Police affidavits are the first and often only information the public has about the evidence in a case. Affidavits are used to get an arrest warrant, but that doesn't mean they're always accurate or complete, as we've talked about before. Yes. The investigator's story is then the one told in the courtroom. 
In many cases, not necessarily this one, as I said, the police cultivate the victim's family during the investigation, convincing them that the person they think is a suspect is the one who did it long before he or she is charged. That happens even sometimes when the person is never charged or if the person is exonerated and it's a false conviction. I'm not saying that Clegg didn't do it. I'm just saying our justice system is set up to make it very, very hard for a jury to acquit someone like Clegg or even get their heads around reasonable doubt. And I'll talk more about reasonable doubt after tackling a couple other topics. Topic two, the magic shell casing. The only thing that the prosecution had to tie Clegg to the killings was those two shell casings found in plain sight by the assistant attorney general. And he was the assistant attorney general on the case back when the investigation was going on, but he became a U.S. attorney. So there were different assistant attorney generals trying this case. When Clegg was arrested, he had a loaded six hour, nine millimeter pistol in his knapsack. I'm not sure how he was going to get that on the plane the next day to Germany, (laughs) but whatever. The defense started from the beginning before this was even introduced as evidence to force the parade of investigators to testify during the two week prosecution case to confirm how thorough they were with all their evidence and with all their investigations. Yet, somehow, when those casings were introduced about halfway through the trial, everyone, I mean everyone, had missed them sitting next to that tree yeah, on the trail. Or the, interesting. The prosecution witnesses throughout their testimony stressed how the metal detector never seemed to work quite right. The mm. defense, of course, scoffed at this. You're investigating a double murder but can't get a metal detector that works? The cops, two days after the bodies were found, when the scene was about to be opened back up to the public, also set up two game cameras. One pointed down to where the bodies were found, about 50 yards off the trail. Another one was supposed to catch anyone walking down the trail to the site. They wanted to see if the killer returned to the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. But at some point, to hear them tell it, they realized the game camera pointed at the trail never picked up any images. They thought they fixed it, but it still didn't pick up any images. That game camera just never picked up one single image. For those of you who don't know, game cameras are not rocket surgery. It's a little confounding that the Concord Police Department couldn't get this one to work. The one, by the way, that would have caught someone planting those shell casings on the trail, Mm. if that's what happened. The last week of the prosecutor's case, Detective Wade Brown who spent a couple of days on the stand, testified that in the summer before the trial, so more than a year after the shootings, he'd been looking at some photos of the scene. And in a photo that the FBI took on May 10th, 2022, 10 days before the casings were found by the assistant attorney general, he could see one of them in a photo when he zoomed in. Mm -hmm. Now, this photo was a general one of the trail taken, I would guess, though no one has said, that I can remember about 20 yards from the tree where the casings were found. And the shell casing is about the size of your thumb or smaller. Wade Brown zoomed way in in Eureka. There it was, son of a gun. Brown compared that to photos he'd taken with his iPad on May 20th, 2022 of the casings after the assistant AG found them. And son of a gun, they looked exactly like each, both photos, they looked exactly alike. And they were the exact same distance from a distinctive tree root there. So he knew it was the same thing. Uh Of course, on the defense witness list, there was a forensic digital photo analysis expert who'd also examined the photos. The next week, as the defense case was getting underway, the morning before 
that witness, the digital forensic photo analysis guy was scheduled to testify, the prosecutor got an email during the morning testimony. It was from another detective on the case, Brendan Ryder. He'd been watching the testimony on TV that morning. It was a DNA expert um, that I'll talk about later. While he was doing it, he started looking through photos of the case. Hmm. He was looking at crime scene photos from April 22nd, 2022, the day after the bodies were found. And he found what looks like a shell casing in one of those photos. You don't say. In a hearing held with the jury out of the room at the lunch break that day, the defense argued that Ryder's testimony should not be heard, that it was unfair surprise and some other stuff. The state had already rested its case. This was Wednesday of the last week of the trial. The prosecution argued that it should be heard, and the defense had gotten those same photos in January, and they had a photo analysis expert, and they were free to have sent them to him, too, to look at. One irony of the whole thing, which the prosecution didn't seem to grasp, was that they'd made a motion that the judge hadn't yet ruled on that the defense photo expert didn't qualify as an expert. Yet here they were using Wade Brown the week before and now Brendan Ryder to testify that they'd zoomed in photos and saw a shell casing that no one else had seen. The judge said he'd allow the testimony, which I thought was bullshit. I also saw him when Maya Dominguez, one of the defense lawyers, during this hearing was making this passionate case about why it shouldn't be allowed. I saw him look at one of the prosecutors and kind of give a little eye roll. Uh, which i mean the jury wasn't there to see it but i'm just like okay now i know what he thinks of the case yeah anyway the judge ruled and it was the same stipulation he had on wade brown the week before that Ryder could not say it was a shell casing he could just say that he saw an object uh, in the photo this was wednesday the trial was scheduled to end friday the state had ended its case tuesday afternoon so the defense had about two days to present their case and now this thing had come up So that afternoon, the defense had their photo analyst guy in the stand, and I won't go through all his credentials, but he was the real deal. He also went into a lot of detail about how you can't just zoom in and find something. He showed how in his analysis, what Wade Brown claimed was a shell casing in the May 10th FBI photo actually looked nothing like the one in the May 20th photo that Brown had taken of the actual casing. Also, because of the zooming, et cetera, perspective was off and the object wasn't in the exact same place. His looked different somehow from Wade Brown's. This expert had been given the Brendan Ryder photo only an hour before his testimony. The defense just briefly touched on it at the end of the day. He said he didn't see anything worthwhile in the photo. The next day, the defense first put on the stand New Hampshire Fish and Game Officer James Benvenuti, who testified how extensively he and his sniffer dog, Cora, Mm. searched the scene. And Cora Cora would not have missed it. No, Cora is trained to find gunshot evidence. She found the blood with the bullet fragment in it that later turned out to have passed through Stephen Reed, although Wade Brown had earlier testified that Brendan Ryder had found it. Um, Yeah, right. And now we know why. Because we want to prove that Brendan is smarter than a dog. (laughs) Then defense attorney Caroline Smith, after Cora's handler, James Benvenuti went off the stand, put Brendan Ryder on the stand, and led him through every way the area had been searched in the days after the shootings. This took well over an hour to lead him through all the different ways the area had been searched, making it clear the shell casings would have been found if they had been there. The thing is, during the hearing the day before, Carolyn Smith, the lead defense attorney, had said, 
that they believe those shell casings were planted. She didn't say by who. And the thing is, when you think about it, on May 20th, 2022, when they were found, the cops had no idea who Logan Clegg was or what kind of gun was used in the homicides. They also hadn't yet found the ones at the burnt tent site. That wouldn't be for another few months. So here's my theory about how those shell casings ended up there. I don't think the cops gave a shit how they ended up there. But my theory is that Clegg was in the woods. They found casings later at the burnt tent site. He was obviously practiced shooting his gun, which he had bought in February. But somebody at some point found shell casings. After the shootings and everything, they decided either to be an asshole or -hmm. to be helpful Mm -hmm. that they were going to put those there for the police to find. I expressed that theory when we were sitting around talking, waiting for the jury to come back, and nobody understood it. But those are big woods. Clegg was shooting this gun since February. There were going to be shell casings around. Believe me, I would perfectly believe the cops had planted them if they had known what kind of gun shot the reeds, but they had no clue. And then these casings later matched ones shot from the gun that was on class. They obviously were not there. April 21st, they just weren't. They could not have possibly been there. No, no, they would have found them. So to me, the most logical thing is somebody not connected to the case found them somewhere else in the woods and put them there for whatever reason, Either, either to make things exciting, to have something to do with the case, you know, even though... nobody would know it was them to kind of do you understand what i'm saying yes it's possible that you don't that's the only thing that makes sense to me i don't think they were there i mean i agree with you they would have been found so uh, they got there somehow those shell casings were the literally the only evidence that came close to linking logan to the shootings that was it dna evidence such as it was the state had sent 63 DNA samples to a lab in Florida that could do touch DNA. I was surprised during opening statements that the state didn't mention DNA. In fact, Megan Hageman, the lone female on the prosecution team, said to the jury during voir dire, can you rule on a case where there's no DNA evidence? I'm like, oh, that's interesting. The reeds were dragged down off the trail their clothes were in disarray the way you would be if you were dragged and then somebody piled stuff on them and it mm-hmm. rained but because wendy was kind of on top of steven and there was stuff piled on him stuff he not washed away they found on the underside of his belt and on one of his boots and socks touched dna that was not his that was from an unknown male and it was too degraded to do a full profile but it was like a hmm. some huge fraction amount more likely to be from somebody else than from Logan Clegg. Analyst from that lab was not called by the prosecution, but was the defense's first witness to testify there was unknown male DNA that was much more likely to be from somebody else, not Logan Clegg, on the underside of Stephen Reed's belt and on his boot and sock. Did the defense have any argument about Logan Clegg's size and strength and how much strength it would take to drag two dead weight well, bodies it's and interesting. how long it would take to well, drag them. Okay, it's interesting you ask that because because I just had so much stuff I didn't put that in, but that's a topic I'll talk about right now. Logan Clegg is about 5'9", I would guess, and incredibly painfully thin. 
Wade Brown did an experiment. They used fire department dummies, weighted dummies, and did an experiment where the dummies were on the trail and one weighed like 140 pounds and one weighed 200 pounds. And they timed it how long it would take him to drag one then the other down to where they were found, pile them up and blah, blah, blah. And whether he showed any signs of... Now, Wade Brown is in very good physical shape and the defense made him go through all the stuff he has to do and he's a runner and stuff. And he's not a big guy, but he's obviously strong. But they didn't videotape it. Uh. Somebody timed it and he claims from the time he started to the time he had regained his composure, as he called it, it was five minutes. Because that's how much time elapsed between when Nan Nutt heard the gunshots and when she passed Logan Clegg on the trail. So it didn't take as long as I would think. I would think it would take a... Well, it probably actually did. And you only have their word for it. And there was these veiled references to it actually taking longer than that. But when Nan Nutt saw Logan Clegg, he was holding his grocery bag. He had no signs of disarray on his body. He was not Mm -hmm. flushed or sweaty or showing any signs. Although the prosecution later said that their theory is he took the bodies off far enough and then took them the rest of the way later because somebody went back. Oh, and then moved them later. Yeah. And he was probably looking, oh, can you, when she saw him looking, oh, can you oh, see Oh, that him? could be. Because, you know, she was focused on her dog. She was focused on him. She wasn't looking in the woods. No. So that okay. whole thing with Wade Brown's experiment. Well, yeah. Whole- and I was just wondering if he could actually drag a dead weight. He probably could have, but it would have been difficult. Yeah. So all that connect the dots information that we talked about in episode 138, where I said, wow, this, they did a lot of work here. This was connect Mm -hmm. the dots. What didn't really occur to me in episode 138 that I realized listening to the trial. Yeah. They did great work finding out who the guy in the woods was. Yeah. None of it connected Logan Clegg to shooting the Reeds. Yeah. So what was the state's big argument? Topic three, consciousness of guilt. Consciousness of guilt is when the actions by the defendant while not tying him directly to the crime and show that his guilt of doing the crime made him behave a certain way. Hmm. It's actually considered evidence. I think it's bullshit because what it does is it asks those 12 people in the jury box to put themselves in the head of the defendant and determine what he's thinking and why he did the things he did. I defy any of those people to put themselves in the head of Logan Clegg, who by all accounts led a life they couldn't even begin to fathom. Yeah. So I'll tell you what the state argued, and then I'll tell you what the defense response to that was. The state argued that the fact he burned down his tent site with all his belongings in it, probably the night after he killed the Reed, shows consciousness of guilt. He was destroying evidence. They had him on April 19th, the morning after the Reeds were shot at Walmart, surveillance buying a new tent and sleeping bag. And it was out of the 50 Walmart surveillance videos they found of him buying stuff. It's the only one where he wasn't wearing a face mask. And it was kind of funny, at the end of the state's case, the defense, like they do in most murder cases, made a motion to dismiss, saying the state had approved its case, and they made their argument. And they do this without the jury there. Yes. Uh, And the defense argued that he he didn't like cops, and they had come across him in the woods, Brian Craig, the officer, on April 15th, and he was concerned about his warrant, and that's why he burned the thing down. And the judge said... 
and not dismissing the indictments against Clegg, I don't believe he would burn all his worldly goods and only have the clothes on his back and what he could put in his knapsack because of a warrant. And so then during the closing arguments, the prosecuting attorney whose closing argument I thought was really trite and overwrought, ham-handed and bad compared to the very good defense one, said word for word what the judge had said. And I'm like, God, the guy can't even do his own thinking. The judge has to give him his best line. But that's one of the state's arguments that he would not have. He would have have burned everything that belonged to him because he didn't want to get arrested on a warrant. The state also argued that the fact that on April 21st, the day the bodies were later found, he did a fresh start on his laptop, which means it clears all the browsing history and other data and stuff without clearing things like photos in your email and everything. They said that showed consciousness of guilt. He was trying to get stuff off his laptop. The fact that he lied to the cops when they were looking for the reads on April 20th and gave them a false name showed consciousness of guilt. The fact that on April 21st, before their bodies were found, his search history showed that he bought a bus ticket to Portland, Maine, leaving the next day. By the way, he only spent a month in Portland before going to Burlington, Vermont. Portland, Maine, he was here? Yeah, from April 22nd, 2022 to mid-May. And my guess, the reason he left Portland is because in Concord, he had a nice deal where he was in these woods, and then Loudon Road was a strip with McDonald's and Walmart and grocery stores and blah, blah, blah. And the place he found in Burlington, Vermont was like that too. But there's really nowhere in Portland where a homeless person can live in a tent and be left alone and have access to those things. He could have come to Augusta, but um, he probably didn't think of that. The fact when he was arrested in Vermont and Wade Brown went to question him, Clegg lied about things like when he left Concord. He said he knew there was still snow on the ground when he left and that he never shopped at Walmart and lied about a bunch of other stuff to weigh ground. Also showed consciousness of guilt. The fact he bought a one-way ticket to Germany showed consciousness of guilt. The defense argued, however, that Clegg didn't like people and didn't like cops. There was a warrant out for his arrest. He lied to the police and got out of Concord and burned his tent down because he didn't want to be arrested on the warrant. In fact, all his actions, including clearing his laptop history, which would have showed he bought ammo, was also because of the warrant, because he didn't want to be arrested on charges. He's yeah, like, I he's mean, felon yeah. in possession. He'd been to Europe at least twice before, and if he were fleeing because of the murders, why did he wait six months to go, the defense asked. He didn't know the cops were after him. Twice on lengthy browsing history, just from one of his email addresses, they had 76 pages of browsing history, Only twice (laughs) did he look up Concord, New Hampshire in that entire time. I think consciousness of guilt, as I said, is bullshit. Every cop will tell you people lie to them all the time. I don't think that's evidence, honestly. It is legally considered evidence. I know. The jury is supposed to understand how Logan Clegg's brain worked, given just the limited information they'd been given about him. They knew nothing about the guy, nothing except what they'd seen and heard in the courtroom. And they just spent three weeks listening to mostly cops and stuff laying out a case against him. So topic four, reasonable doubt. I think that the defense made a really strong case for reasonable doubt. There was no evidence linking him directly to the crime. There was the shell casing that obviously, however it did, showed up there later. 
There was DNA that belonged to someone else on Stephen Reed's on the underside of his belt and stuff. Mm -hmm. But as I told multiple people, as we sat around waiting for a verdict, it's really, really, really hard for a jury to acquit someone. Specifically in this case, I would have been stunned if they had acquitted Clegg despite the pile of reasonable doubt. Sitting feet away from the family and the prosecutors for three weeks, every single thing indicating if they voted to acquit that they didn't care about the Reeds getting killed. I'm sure anyone with some doubts rationalized that even if he hadn't done it, he was a sketchy character who was better off in prison. I had thought, gee, I think it'd be fun to be on a jury. After seeing this, I didn't because I would have been that person. Well, first of all, I never would have gotten on this jury since they removed anyone with critical thinking skills, mm-hmm. anyone who watched true crime, that's anyone they, who knew anything they, about they, the case. That's what so they you do. get 12 people who lack basic curiosity and critical thinking skills. My apologies to anybody on the jury who may be listening to this. I would have been that person. It's very hard. If you're the person in the jury room, well... I have a lot of reasonable doubt. And the 11 other people are like, we've been here for almost a fucking month and we fucking want to go fucking home. 11 of us or 10 of us or whatever think he did it. Are you really going to be the, you'd have to be somebody like me, you know? You have to be really strong. Right. Well, well, yeah, I wasn't going to say strong. I was just going to say stubborn and dig your heels in. And I think most people were like, yeah, you know, people don't want to disbelieve the cops. Yeah. They just don't. As I wrote for Manchester Inklink after the closing arguments when the jury went to deliberate, to find Clegg guilty, the jury will have to believe that with no obvious motive, he shot the Reeds to death on his way back to his campsite in the broken ground trail system, toting the hot rotisserie chicken and two liter bottle of Mountain Dew that he just bought at Shaw's. And that when a woman walking her dogs came upon him minutes after hearing gunshots, he'd already concealed the Reed's bodies, but showed no signs of exertion and showed no obvious blood or dirt on his clothes. They will also have to consider that DNA from an unknown contributor found on Stephen Reed's clothing, including inside his belt, and that is less likely to be from Clegg than someone else, was not from someone dragging Reed off the trail after he was shot. To acquit him, The jury will have to believe that Clegg bears a striking resemblance to the man on the trail, but may not be him, that shell casings found a month after the killings and later found to match his gun were planted on the trail before police had any idea who Clegg was, that he burned down his tent site with all his belongings in it in the days surrounding the shootings because he was going to be arrested on a fugitive charge out of Utah. And, well, they believed the first one. But also, just listening to people, including other journalists, talk, everyone just talked like he was guilty from the beginning. And the only people who agreed with me on the reasonable doubt were the people from the public defender's office who sat through the whole trial on the same bench I did. Topic five, Logan Clegg's gun. Clegg, on February 12th, 2022, took a Greyhound bus to Montpelier, Vermont, from Concord, New Hampshire, and then took a local bus to Barrie, Vermont, seven miles away, where he bought a Glock 17 and three boxes of six sour nine millimeter ammunition at RNL Archery, a gun and hunting shop. He showed a Vermont driver's license with the name Arthur Kelly and a Barrie, Vermont address. Police later found that the number on the driver's license couldn't be confirmed, which by federal law, the federal Brady law, should have meant a hold on the gun sale. Anyone with a federal license to sell guns who gets an ID they can't confirm cannot sell the person the gun. 
Store owner Chris Sanborn at the time Clegg was arrested told media outlets that the person who bought the gun provided an ID that was entered into the FBI's NCIS system. Quote, if there were any red flags that came up, we wouldn't have sold him the gun, he told the Boston Globe. Mm -hmm. But Sanborn testified at the trial and that whole thing did not come up. They went over how he had Clegg fill out a form and then they checked the form against the ID. They didn't mention the NCIS. I guess it could have been one of the zillion things they had hearings about over the summer that one side or the other didn't want to come into evidence. I didn't go through. There were more than 200 documents in the hearings I didn't watch. I just didn't have time. I've never read or heard anything about whether the gun shop got in trouble for that, but it was an obvious deliberate omission at the trial. And God only knows how many times it happens when someone doesn't get killed. But Right. And But I said this kid, well, this young man bought a gun and bought ammunition. He was going to use it. Illegally. Yes. Here are a couple other notes. Lots of professions, cops and doctors come to mind, would sooner stick white hot pokers in their eyes than criticize members of their own profession, even when those members uh, do things wrong or out of line. This, of course, is not true for journalists. I'm the only journalist who sat through the entire trial every minute of that trial. There was another one there, but she missed some crucial things, either because she left the courtroom before something happened, like the motion hearing on the Brendan Ryder testimony, or because she read a book, particularly during the defense case, including some crucial moments. I guess she just didn't consider the defense important. I don't know how you could read a book. I didn't read other people's stuff for the most part. I was told by some people that the stories in her paper were biased towards the prosecution and i'm like yeah that's because she was reading a book during the defense case the little i saw in both that publication and others digital publications made me worry for anyone who thought they were getting an accurate account by reading about the trial even i had to leave stuff out but i tried to give enough information to my stories to let people know what was going on here's an example of what that young woman's publication had Nan Nutt, the woman who passed a guy on the trail after hearing gunshots, who was likely Clegg, never said it was Clegg. She didn't say it in her testimony. No Mm -hmm. one asked her, is that man in the courtroom? And she made it very clear that she didn't get a good look at him. She was not asked to identify him by either side, yet the headline in the newspaper that the other reporter worked for that I just saw in a news flash online said something like, witness testified she saw Clegg on trail. Hmm. Other reporters watched on streaming, including one who wrote about how the lead investigator very early in the first week of the trial testified about finding Clegg's gun. No, she didn't. His gun actually didn't come up at all in the trial until almost two weeks later. And this isn't all a big brag for my massive ego. It doesn't take any special talent or skill to sit on your ass on a wooden bench from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. to pay attention and take notes. Somebody said to me, gee, you sure take a lot of notes. I filled, <laughs> I, filled, I filled four steno pads back and front of the pages. And I'm like, well, you don't know what's going to be important. D, that's what I do. It's my job. Like any decent writing, it's just hard work, tenacity, and critical thinking skills. It just really makes me sad that journalism has gotten so shitty for us, too, for our podcast, since we rely on it for yeah. a lot of our information. And again, I'm not 
saying, oh, I'm so great. I did such a great job. Like, I didn't even read other people's stuff, but I was just floored by the few things I saw that were just so wrong and floored by that young woman sitting there reading a fucking book during some of the most crucial testimony of the trial. Blew my fucking mind. Okay, I said I was going to talk about the dogs. Doggies, yes. They never, they don't, I, I got, I, okay. Yeah, here it comes. We often say on this podcast, that the cops never give the dogs credit. Defense attorney Maya Dominguez said that too during the defense yes, case. Good for her. And I also saw it in action. Early in the trial, every cop who testified about the bodies being found said that a cop found them, except, of course, for Brett Barry of the New Hampshire State Police, who's the handler of Oakley, the dog who actually found the bodies. Yes. Just because a dog can't say, hey, you guys, there's a body here. Actually, Brett Perry said head, head, because he saw the head. Yes. The defense at times had to drag out of the cops during the course of the trial, during cross-examination, that a dog found something. And it was kind of funny watching the defense try to force the cops to say that a dog had found something Mm -hmm. that they wanted to claim that they found. Later, as I've already gone over, Cora, the sniffer dog, found the bullet fragments and blood on the trail, but the cops took credit for that, too. Dominguez, the defense attorney, argued in her closing statement that Wade Brown gave Brendan Ryder credit for finding that bullet fragment to imply, Wade Brown wanted to imply that even though Cora had sniffed around the tree where the magical bullet casings were found, it didn't mean she'd find anything. And that's why he didn't get her, give her credit for finding the bullet fragment because he didn't want the jury to say, oh, Cora finds Yeah, yeah, stuff, yeah. You know? But we um, all know that the dogs are right. Giving the dog credit would mean giving her abilities too much weight and mess up the magic bullet casing evidence. Mm-hmm. I think in general, yeah. as we've mentioned many times on this podcast, cops don't want to give dogs credit. They think that they're awesome at what they do, and they don't want people to think a dog can do it too. And I know you agree. Yes, I do. Which brings us to another favorite topic that was certainly evident at this trial. Cops lie Uh, we've talked about it before particularly in episode 95 genetic car about test lying that's where they actually deliberately lie in their testimony in order to convict somebody they lie about evidence and stuff in the logan clegg case it was just little lies but the casual way they bend the truth under oath is a little breathtaking we already talked about the dog thing which when you claim you found something not the dog that's not the truth, uh-huh. right? The dog found it. But there are other little things too. One example is that the lead detective, Danica Gorham, said Homeland Security called her after Clegg bought the plane ticket. I put that in my story, but I remembered that in that 27-page affidavit that we did episode 138 based on, yes. it said Homeland Security called the Logan, Utah police because they're the ones with the warrant and the Utah yes. police called Gorham. So I put that in my story. Funnily enough, the next day, Gorham was still on the stand. The defense asked her if Homeland Security called her or the, uh. police, or the police in Utah. And she had to admit they called the police in Utah. And she seemed a little taken aback by being a little flustered by uh-huh. it. I have serious reservations. Any of the police were telling the truth about the wonky metal detector 
that they mm-hmm. kept saying, oh, it just didn't work right. It just didn't work right. And Bullshit. then we got one in August from the fish and game department that worked much better. I don't think they were telling the truth about the wonky game camera. As the defense pointed out, you're trying to solve this huge double homicide and you just keep using equipment all that summer does, long yeah, that, that doesn't that work. That doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, what Come the on. fuck? Are they the fucking Keystone cops? Or is there some other reason? Like they know those bullet casings weren't there, but the casings are the only physical evidence they mm. have that can remotely tie Clegg to, to the shootings. Although all they really prove when you think about it is that no matter when they got there, the casings that matched the gun were on the trail. It doesn't, because they still can't put the bullets, as Dominguez pointed out, or Caroline Smith pointed out, you can't put those bullets in those casings. Yeah. The fact that weeks went by before anyone saw the casings mean anyone could have put them there. I'm not getting off track. Why do cops lie so easily? I have a couple thoughts on that. Uh. First of all, it's okay for them to do it on their job, and they are proud of it, and they brag about it. They claim that's how they get confessions and information out of people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just, yes, just a reminder do. to anyone. And they're allowed to, yes. Anyone being questioned by police, the police can and will lie to you about all sorts of shit. There's no <laughs> evidence they lied to Clegg about anything in this investigation. In fact, one th- whole thing I didn't go into was the Wade Brown interviewing him, which was taped very poorly. And there were a lot of issues related to that, but Wade Brown pretty much did not lie to him that I could tell during that. But I think in general, they don't think the truth applies to them if it gets them to what they believe is the right conclusion. The problem is that that just supports their confirmation bias. Yes. yes. I also think that they are just used to lying in general. So the fact that they're under (laughs) oath doesn't matter to them. They know the prosecution won't care and they have obvious contempt for the defense. They, it's just drips They know the jury will believe them. And even if their lies are pointed out, like with the dogs and, you know, who called whom about the plane ticket, they know that people will be like, oh, that's not a big deal. You know, and the fact that they're lying under oath about these little details doesn't seem to matter to anybody. So there's a shitload more I can say, but honestly, I am all clegged out. Um, When I volunteered to cover this trial for my dear friend, Carol, I thought it would be fun, and it was, and I thought it'd be fun to stay at Nikki and Todd's camp with them because they're living there to escape. And the weather was beautiful. And the weather was beautiful, and it was a beautiful drive every day through western New Hampshire to Concord. But total immersion in something like this, when I was writing this script, I'm like, this is the last time I want to have to think or talk about this shit. That said, if listeners do have questions because it's confusing, if people want to send questions, I'll answer them during other episodes because I really feel like I don't want to let my, all this, you know, I'm kind of a walking Clegg encyclopedia. His sentencing is December 15th. I'm sure he'll get life because I think the second Uh degree murder is like 20. They doubled down on the charges, two second degree charges for each victim. One was recklessly and one was knowingly and recklessly was an alternate charge. And it wasn't clear to me, but I guess you do all of them so that if one gets thrown out on appeal, you still have the other. I don't know. I don't plan to go cover it. As I said, I'm all clegged out. I'll wait for the news release from the attorney general's Mm -hmm. office and write something up. So Becky, do you have any questions? I know I've said this before. To be a prosecutor, you have to believe the person is guilty. To be a defense attorney, 
You have to believe that the person deserves to have their constitutional rights upheld and you represent that person, whether they're guilty or not. Most cases are more straightforward. Most cases get pled out. It's like 90% of the cases, I think, don't go to trial. People just plead guilty. I think this case did have a lot of reasonable doubt. People say victims don't have any rights and all this stuff and defendants have more rights. The thing is, everybody has constitutional rights. Everybody, no matter what you've done. So the defendant does have rights. Clearly, the victims and the victim's family deserve to get justice for whatever happened to their family member. There's a fine line, though. You can't say you don't care about the victims just because you think that this person deserves... Like, if you're a defense attorney and people are like, I don't know how you can defend that person. It's like, because it's my job to because make sure that this person's constitutional right. rights and also, are upheld. Justice and vengeance are two different things. Yes, and, they are. And in a perfect world, justice is not... This guy over here did it. This horrible tragedy that's happened to our family, this guy must pay. But yeah. justice is who did this and what's the best did track to it. Did and it's it? actually a little the disturbing truth. in a trial. The evidence that is not talked about, the things that aren't talked about, yes. the fact that a theory yes. is being proved. It's not like here's everything we know. Yes. Who did it? But a theory. And as I, one of my many, 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 many peeves is on every true crime tv show documentary and stuff it's always the cops are always like well this family deserves us to get justice that we we're getting justice for this family we're getting justice for this family and it's like no and who you need to be getting justice for are the people are the yeah are the system it's the people versus blah 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 right when you start saying it's we have to do it for this family it becomes this dynamic where it's the family against the defendant when what it really is who did this i always feel like when you know like especially like in cold cases oh it went 20 years and the family really needed justice it's like no it went 20 years and somebody needs to be held accountable for murdering somebody yes for all of us that's for all of us that yes that murder right that crime is and the truth is important not yes not getting getting somebody in jail right finding out what happened and why but look at how many cases get overturned when people are convinced that this person did it and then i always think of too is reading michelle mcnamara the one about the golden state killer i'll be gone in the dark i'll be gone in the dark how many people in her investigation you know when her research that looked like they could there was so much evidence right there were so many things that looked like this could be that person and it wasn't it was it wasn't any of those people because there's a lot of scummy gross people out there that do bad things but they're not this particular murderer you know how another peeve of mine oh you can't make this up and i always say well those people must not read many mystery novels who say oh you can't make this up yeah if this were a mystery novel no one would believe it but if this were a mystery novel he would be the like i said earlier the perfect red herring the wrong guy in the wrong place doing all the wrong things with the wrong life with the wrong background with a loaded gun who'd already killed somebody who'd threatened to shoot police in utah so when nan not heard those shots that was them being killed yes 
but who knows? Just about the dogs, I want to say, I did mention my dog, Peeve. It was about the most recent shooting because I thought a dog found the guy. And he may have, we don't know. Yeah. I said that on Facebook and someone whose husband is a police officer said, oh, well, they they always give the dogs credit. They have a ceremony and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, they have a ceremony among other cops. They'll give the dogs credit. And I know that if you talk to them, they'll say, well, the dog assisted me in finding yes. this. So I technically found it. It's not the dog's handlers who yeah, aren't giving the dog credit. It's the other cop in this one the defense couldn't even nail down the concord police didn't even want to say that when the bodies were found that they were up on the trail 50 yards away she even had trouble getting them to admit that because they wanted to say they're the ones who found the reason and that's why i say cops should only be dogs. we should right. just have police forces of dogs if right. you're trying to solve I see that if you're if you are trying to solve a crime right dogs sense of smell is millions and right. millions of times better than ours don't tell me that a dog would have missed those shell cases you see something with your naked eye and the dog right. would not have found right. it that is bullshit and, and the guy who found it was just standing there dum 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 and looked down and there oh, they gee. were it's not like you he know, was any even... idiot could have put him there. I know. It... Anyway, I will well, have an thank update. Thank you on his... so much for your coverage. Thank you. I'm happy to answer any questions people have because it is complicated. All my articles, I wrote an article every day of the trial, are on Manchester Inc. Link. She does not have a paywall because she believes that information should be free to the people. Oh, so nice if you go on Manchester Inc. Link and search Logan Clegg, you'll see my articles. So do you have a negative Nelly review for us tonight? Yes, I do. <laughs> it's an interesting one. Oh, good. It was something that I didn't plan to watch. I was on Discovery Plus and it popped up as one of those recommendations. And I'm like, I, it popped up a couple times. I'm like, why is this popping up? I don't have any interest in this. Mm. Then I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'll, I'll watch it because it was short. It's two episode. It is called Megan the Stallion versus Tory Lanes. Mm. And Megan the Stallion is a rap artist woman. And Tory Lanes is also a rap artist. If any of our listeners are rap, I should say not rap, that's hip hop fans. I'm going to sound like a total fucking idiot. I know who Megan the Stallion, I've always been very confused by her name. I do know that she had a hit called WAP, which stands for Wet Ass Pussy. A man wrote the lyrics, not surprisingly. The reason I never wanted to watch this is because I don't know who these people are. I know nothing about them. But then I figured it sounded interesting. So I watched it. So what it's about is, I think it was the summer of 2020, Megan the Stallion was at a party at Jenner, Kylie Jenner, some one of those Kardashian girls house with Tory Lanes, and they were driving home he has a driver and his driver was driving his car and a young woman Megan's friend was in the car too so there were four two girls two boys they were in a residential neighborhood this is in Los Angeles I think it was a well-heeled neighborhood they got in an argument Tory told the girls they had to get out of the car they got out of the car and he shot Megan in the feet he shot at her feet 
they had bullet fragments in them. All right. Then the cops came because someone called 911. They got back in the car and drove off. The cops pulled them over. They all got out of the car. They made them lay face down on the ground. She was bleeding from her feet. She could barely walk. The cops said, why are your feet bleeding? And she said, I stepped on some glass. Then later she did go to the hospital, get the bullet fragments removed. And then she went to trial. Tori. This documentary is in two parts. The first part is 50 minutes. It's called Megan's Story. The second part is 45 minutes and it's called Tori's Story. They both go through the case the night of what happened. Bad reenactments? No, there are no reenactments. Narrative cliches and taken off half a point. There are talking heads to young women. They are experts on hip-hop and the journalists and stuff and there's a guy that's like an LA Times reporter but it's just the same type of thing where they're telling a story they don't need to tell because we can I mean they do give some background on her like on both of them they give background on their career and stuff so people like me who are idiots and don't know who they are can get some background but still I'm taking half a point because it's the same format that everyone uses and it's just annoying racial gender obtuseness I'm not taking any points off except for I take five points off myself because (laughs) I had no idea who they were except her and I didn't know anything about this case. Lack of good visuals. No, there are a lot of good visuals because of the internet. They both use social media and so they have a lot of videos of themselves and he apparently stayed with her during COVID and they're supposedly friends. She said they're just friends. He said they slept together. Mm. But so there's a lot of good visuals. There's surveillance, probably someone's house surveillance video of when they got stopped. I don't think it was from the police car because it was like a far view of the street. So it was probably some businesses video showing them being stopped by the cops and stuff like that and they did show some body cam video of that so i thought that was pretty good missing pieces taking a half point off because i felt like the story was told by other people they didn't talk to any of the principals Mm. they didn't talk to her they didn't talk to him they probably didn't want to talk it was by people who didn't even really know them that well if they knew him at all so that made it a little bit yeah Inaccuracy anachronisms, no. Storytelling, I'm taking half a point off. It was kind of the same. Like I said, the format was just right. kind of blah. Yeah. Like she was this and then, and then they show her doing, you know, dancing or whatever. I don't right. know. Freshness, I'm not taking any points off because, like I said, I didn't know anything about it and mm. I thought it was interesting. Repetition. I'm taking half a point off because they did show the same clips over and over. Oh, and I'm yeah. sure there was a lot. There's probably a lot of film of both of them. I mean, they're both hip hop stars. Right. And they both do a lot of social media. Beating the drum, no. What I wanted to say about it is her story, which I believe is the truth. They were all drunk, except for maybe the driver. Hopefully he wasn't. But they had been drinking all day. And this was like three, four in the morning. This guy, Tori, they didn't go into it enough, but he had been violent with other people before. He had a gun. And he got mad and he was shooting at her feet and said, someone said, he said, dance, bitch, which I don't know if he did or not, but that wouldn't surprise me Mm -hmm. if he was drunk and thought he was being cool. And maybe he thought he wasn't going to hit her feet. Maybe he wasn't trying to hit her, but she did get injured. And then she got a shitload. Talk about misogyny. She did not say anything about 
about what happened. I can't remember how it came out, but then once like she it didn't did, even tell the top cops at the beginning, right? She at the beginning, and that, but that came back to bite her in the ass. I, I knew people, it would. Yeah, people said, "Why did you lie?" And she said, "She was when it came out what happened. It was a couple months later. She was on like Good Morning. I think Gal King was interviewing her, and she said black people were getting killed by cops. I did not want them to know we had a gun in the car." I was trying to protect not only myself, but the other people who are with me, even though he had shot me, I didn't at the time, at that time, I just reacted, which I think was totally believable. Yeah, that makes sense. And people like, oh, you lied, you you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh So what Tori's side said was that her friend, the other girl in the car, apparently Tori and this girl in the car were having a thing an affair you know had a relationship and so did Megan with him so the two girls got in a fight and this other girl shot her and her feet that was his story which is a bunch of bullshit he clearly is a dickhead that did it to her but she got so much shit as they always from do people the misogyny is unbelievable yeah and it's from other women too yep. which yep. happens so much but i thought it was good it was short so you can watch it pretty quickly even though like i said i i never heard of him i know nothing about him and i don't want to spoil it but what happened but you'll have to watch if you want to see it i enjoyed it it was i watched it actually twice because i started watching it again when it came for some reason it came up again and i'm like oh i'll do this for negative nelly so i'll watch it again i feel bad for her because not only did she get bullet fragments in her feet and he's toxic male definitely But then she gets dragged through the mud and he gets nothing. A couple of people said, oh, yeah, he probably did it. But nothing yep. like what she got. That's how it always happens. Ridiculous. So anyways, they could have beat the drum a little bit more even on domestic abuse. Oh, yeah. Domestic abuse. Yeah. they didn't. Yeah, well, that's how it goes. But oh, that was my oh, that sounds good. Knowledge. Maybe I'll look for it. I don't David have Discovery Plus anymore, but I have. Oh, yeah, I got Max. rid of Max. I got rid oh, of Max for the time being. I guess we should probably go. And next time will be me. Yeah, and we're back on. Going to be back on schedule every two weeks. So and this week we're going to Crime Bake. So if anything yeah. exciting happens, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. That paid off because Clegg in early October of 2022 bought a one-way plane ticket to Berlin, Germany. Mm. No, Ber- Berlin. I said it the New Hampshire way. To Berlin. Berlin. Berlin Germany. Berlin. Berlin. Yes. Germany. Not Berlin, New Hampshire. Berlin, <laughs> Germany. 